Well, I'd like to welcome you all this morning. Good morning. It's good to see you. Um, it's, this is going to be, a, this is a great day. Been looking forward to this, to this day and, and truly thankful for it. But it is certainly good to see each and every one of you. This morning in our second sermon in 1 Peter, we're going to look at the, the next three verses. We're going to look at the next three verses here in 1 Peter. Now, when we spent several, several, several weeks and months in the book of Ephesians, uh, I told you then, for those who are around, uh, I told you then that Ephesians is split up into seemingly two, two main parts, two main parts, but yet still under one theme, and that is being in Christ. The first half of the letter lists out what we call the indicatives of the gospel. This is the truths of and facts of the gospel of God's word, the, the very foundation and beginning of salvation and how it was before the foundation of the world and the calling that God has called upon his church to come into Christ and to be saved by God's grace. And then the Apostle Paul gives us what is called the imperatives, the, the commands of, of, of scriptures, and those commands, those imperatives, come out of those indicatives, right? So this is what we know about who God is and what God has done by his grace to save us and to draw us out of death into light, into marvelous salvation. By his grace, he has given us the faith to believe, set apart by his glory, to be the church, to be the manifold wisdom to the world. He has called us to do so by these, these imperative commands. Now, I say all this not because we're preaching Ephesians. We talked a lot about Ephesians last week. But in 1 Peter, Peter essentially does the same thing to, to build up his readers. For those who are reading 1 Peter, they are meant to be built up in these troubling times that they may be facing. For them to be built up in deep, rich theological truth before he tells them to do anything. Now, last week, the deep theological truth that we, that we dove right into in the greeting was how he wrote to God's elect, God's chosen people by sovereign grace before the foundation of the world, to the elect exiles, those who have trusted and followed in Christ as their Lord and Savior, those whom he has transformed and those whom he has regenerated, these people, though living still in their hometowns, in their home cities, in their home places, they are feels and seems like and treated as exiles, as strangers, as sojourners, and as aliens. And the reason is, is because when we are in Christ and we are transformed, regenerated, we are living for him, this is no longer our home. This world makes us feel like strangers even in our own home. And I believe that's becoming more and more apparent to, to us. We are strange to this world because what we love and what we fear is God, and therefore we do not conform to this world. One commentator wrote, things that excite them bore us. Things that excite us bore them. Peter tells us 
The Lord has done this according to the foreknow- His foreknowledge for the sanctification by the Holy Spirit that we would be obedient to His Word. And lastly, He told us the price. The price that was paid for our salvation is the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The indicatives of 1 Peter continue in our verses this morning. And the reason why is because Christians, elect exiles living in this world, will face continued and increased hostility, and we need truth in order to endure. We need a solid foundation. We need the rock of Christ. And the rock of Christ is gained by knowing Him through His Word. So let's look to 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. Now, greeting the people, one might expect Peter to get right into the nitty-gritty of the plight that these people are facing. And what they're living under. He'll address it and he'll, he'll bring it up a little bit as we will see in a couple weeks. And he should get into the strategies. All the strategies of how these people should just comply. How they should love their neighbors as they turn them in. Or he should maybe tell them, hey, this is how you grow your church by appealing to the world with more of the world. But he doesn't. Hmm. Striking. These Christians, as we said last week, are living in a pre-Christian society. And they stuck out like sore thumbs. Here are these little groups of Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor that no longer participated in the cultural events and the cultural ideals of the day no longer buying uh, sacrifices for their idols and for, their, for the idolatrous worship. They're no longer buying idols to, to bring home and to worship. No more buying of the books of, of mysticism. No longer being a part of those social circles that gather in those particular places for those kinds of worship. No longer the, the sinful treatment toward others. They had a reformed mindset of holiness to be obedient as Christ and to love others and to even love their enemies. No more worshiping the gods of the world, including the worship of Caesar. uh, Caesar. They had to face the scrutiny and persecution because of their transformation in Christ alone and made them look and act completely, starkly different than anyone else. It was like light and darkness. 
and the darkness could not comprehend the light. When someone asked the Puritan Richard Sibbs how a person could know whether he really loved the world or God, this is how Sibbs answered. He said, that will be seen by observing the bent of our heart. How is it swayed toward God and his service and how toward things below? When two masters are parted, their servants will be known whom they serve by following their own master. Blessed by God in these times, we enjoy both religion and the world together. But in times of suffering should approach, then it would be known to those servants we are whose we are. Consider therefore beforehand what thou wouldst do. In trouble and persecution should arise, wouldst thou stand for Christ and set light by liberty, riches, credit, and all comparison to him. Now what he is saying is what we truly loves, what we truly love will tell us if we are God's, if we truly love God. And we are to decide now which, which way we will go. And therefore, what we love must either stay or it must go. So Peter doesn't go into a strategy, but he goes by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to get right to the heart of the people. When you look how he begins this letter here in, in, in just verses 3 through 5, he goes right to the heart. And by doing that, he changes the tone of attitude for all of the hearers. So basically, the stop looking at your circumstances, he doesn't even say that, but he turns them and shifts them to behold God. Behold the Lord. In fact, in verse 3, he moves right into a doxology that sounds straight out of the Old Testament. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed. Blessed be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter turns to worship. We heard last week how much we have received the great blessings of God's grace. But now Peter declares that God is to be blessed. We receive so much blessing, but Peter says now, God is to be blessed. But here's the irony. God doesn't need our blessing. God doesn't need your blessing. God doesn't need my blessing. God doesn't need... Peter's blessing, God, it lacks nothing. He doesn't require encouragement or self-esteem like we do. But why does Peter then turn to praise? Because we need it. Because we need it. We need to return our eyes, our hearts, and our minds to God and to praise Him for the good things that he has done and to give him glory. We need it. We need it because it redirects us. One thing I've learned really quickly is that when you're teaching a child how to ski or to ride a bike, the one thing you must constantly say is, 
keep pedaling. That's the biking part. But in both ways, you tell them to get your head up and look forward. If they want to look at their feet when they're pedaling their bike, or if they're skiing, they want to look this way, they want to look back, and they want to look down, but not forward. And before they know it, they're doing this, and they're going right off the trail. And you're constantly saying, look up. And that's what Peter's doing here. He's redirecting us. Look up. Look up. Bless. Bless the Lord. Blessing God. Extolling the Lord. Worshiping Him. Hallowing His name is nothing new. We sang glory to God this morning. It's nothing new for those who are in the Lord. But this letter starts to blessing the Lord because it is to shift our hearts and minds to dwell upon Him and to dwell upon the deep joy and gladness that comes in knowing Him and in what He has done in us. And in these first section here, I think all the way to verse 13, I believe, or verse 12, it's a redirecting to joy. For us to find joy as we bless the Lord. Now, I am not sure what you have walked in this morning with on your heart or in your mind. I don't know. I'm not sure what burdens you may carry or what sins seem to be overwhelming you. But one thing is for sure is that the Lord is worthy of our blessing. And he is worthy of our praise. And so if you are in Christ and you're carrying such a burden, then I would say then look up and praise him. Because he is our living hope. He is he has secured for us an inheritance and he is our salvation. So first let's bless the Lord for he has given us a living hope. Back to verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according, this is why, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Again, another verse here at the beginning of 1 Peter that is just, I mean, tightly packed. I mean, it's like a suitcase that you're trying to pack uh, to go on a long five-day or a week trip, but you don't want to pay the, the fees to have it thrown into the bottom luggage, so you, it's the carry-on that's this wide. This verse is packed. It's packed with deep, rich theological depth that's not just for theologians and nerds. This is deep, rich theological depth that is for every Christian to dwell upon so that their joy is built up. It's like when you're flying 30,000 feet. Now, the airline illustration, who would have thought? 30,000 feet up in the air, and you're looking out the window, and you just see a stunning sky, and these uh, pillowy, cotton-like uh, clouds just being stretched out across the horizon, and you're just stunned by it. And you look at the person next to you and say, you got to see this. you got to look at this. Even though the hole is this big, you're still, and it's always cloudy and weird, Sometimes it's vibrating, and, and you look through it, and it's just stunning. It's all-inspiring. It's humbling, isn't it, of how small and insignificant we are. It draws us in according to his great mercy. You know what that means when he says according to? We saw this in Ephesians years ago. 
that this is according to the riches of God's glory and the riches of God's mercy, according to the measure, the depth, the riches of his mercy. There is no limit to God's mercy. That's amazing. That's come look through the porthole. According to his great mercy, what has he done? He has caused. God is the great cause. He is the great mover. He is the great mover and the cause that takes the heart of stone and makes it alive again. He is the giver. He is the cause of new life to those who were once dead. He causes what only he can do. And what has he caused? What is it that, that no one else has the power or the ability to do? The greatest of all miracles, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And those who are in Christ, he has caused us to be born again. Of course, this phrase takes us right back to John chapter 3. When Jesus tells Nicodemus, this Pharisee who should know everything about Jesus and know everything about the, the Messiah and the coming Messiah, and he's just struck to the heart, not knowing what in the world, who this guy is. He doesn't know how to interpret Christ. He comes to him in the night and he's like, who are you? What's going on here? And Jesus is describing to him salvation and he tells Nicodemus that unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And if you know his response, he clearly did not understand what that meant. And as Jesus began to unpack to Nicodemus what all that meant, what he was really telling Nicodemus is that it is by God's sovereign hand that as the wind blows, it blows where it wishes. The Spirit brings life. It is God who regenerates and makes us born again. And Peter is telling us the same thing. You know, today, we are told that your identity is everything. What you identify as is everything. I'm not going to take us down that confusing road that the world is on, a devastating, wide, narrow road that leads to destruction. But I'm going to say that everyone wants to be someone. And now identity is bound being mostly, solely found in race, age, sex, sexuality, those things. These things are to be the highest of value to be your identity. They say that what you are is what defines you, and that is what shapes you. But think about the implications, the implications of what the Word of God has just told us in these few short words, what the Word of God has just bestowed upon us, that those who are exiles and those who are strangers, we feel like weirdos in this confusing world, says that where we find no identity here, 
And then we hear in God's word that he has caused us to be born again. That we are given new life. A more glorious identity as a son and daughter of Christ. Doesn't that far outweigh any identity that this world has tried to paint and to lunge upon anyone? We are born again, but we are born into something. We're born to something. And he says, to a living hope through the resurrection from the dead. How could it get any better, right? I mean, I told you, this is a packed suitcase from the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope. To a living hope. A living hope is a genuine, real, vital hope which is in contrast to the empty, vain hopes that we see around us. And sometimes we ourselves even try to place our hope in. Hope in the Bible is not vague. Hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking. Like, I, I, I hope I win, so I'm going to put all my chips in, and I hope I don't lose everything. That's not the hope here. Hope in the Bible is not hope in things. It's not hope in people. It's not hope in institutions. All of those things pass away, and all of those things are corrupted by sin. But biblical hope for the Christian is living in certainty in the biblical promises of God. Peter says that our living hope is only through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, meaning... Because of the resurrection, now you have hope. You have hope. Because if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then guess what? We have no hope and you still remain in your sins. But Christ did, in fact, rise from the dead. And our hope then is set in him that we too one day will be resurrected because death does not have the final answer. Biblical hope, a living hope, is found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ in that through his resurrection and by his resurrection, death is not the final answer for us. As the likelihood of persecution for Christians here and around the world increase, where is your hope? Is it living? Because if it's not in the, the, the resurrected Christ, then it's not living. You see, what's linked together here is your identity in Christ, being born again, and the assurance of the perseverance and a living hope is all rooted in God's mercy through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what is the worst that persecution can do. Death. But if our hope is living in Christ, then we no longer need to fear death because Christ has conquered death and we can be sure that we will follow him through death and then into life. That's living hope. This is how and why 
we bless the Lord. We bless the Lord because he has given us a living hope through Jesus Christ so that when we feel homesick as exiles, when we feel beaten and and battered, we have hope only in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is such good news. This is such good news for us to be reminded of the position that we are in Christ and what he has accomplished for us so that we would be turning our hearts and our minds to bless the Lord. 2 Samuel twenty-two forty-seven: The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock and my salvation. Second, let us bless the Lord for he has given us an inheritance. The sentence continues from our living hope through the resurrection now to an inheritance in verse 4. To an inheritance, verse 4, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading and kept in heaven for you. I told you this suitcase is packed. He is saying, our living hope, our future hope, is waiting and being kept. In the Old Testament, the inheritance is the land that God had promised to his people. We see that in Numbers 32, 19, Joshua 11, uh, 23, throughout Deuteronomy. But in the new covenant, inheritance is no longer in terms of land, but in terms of the end times future hope for Christians that was secured by Jesus Christ in his resurrection. So again, here are these, these exiles, scattered and tattered, but having been brought in according to God's mercy, which he has caused them to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then they have received this promise of a future inheritance. And this promise, this inheritance, as he says with this description, is is that it's not susceptible to corruption because this inheritance is eternal. You see, here every earthly treasure we value will fade. Every human pleasure we hope in will diminish with time. Here even the good that is done is ruined by our own flaws or the flaws of others. Here all that is not eternal will fade and it will end It will rust and it will be destroyed and burned, husks and ashes. But we look forward to an inheritance which never fades, never defiled, and never perishes. So we hear this this trifold description of our glorious inheritance here in verse 4. That it's imperishable, that it's undefiled and unfading. And, and though we may be spiritually speaking homeless in this world, we have a hope of a future homeland that is an, an eternal inheritance that will never lose its glory. 
So these words, these three words are, are, are put forward to contrast and to, to contrast at this world and everything that is dying and being plundered and taken uh, away from us. It's the contrast here to get our minds around this, this particular inheritance. You see, all that we are used to is breaking, it's failing, it's not lasting. I mean, it's why we say they, they don't build things like they used to anymore. Because everything that's being made now just kind of stinks. It may look flashy and it looks pretty with its stainless steel, but the reality, the dumb appliance is only going to last about two years. Another thousand bucks down the drain. Our culture is disposable in everything, including people. It's disposable in everything. Nothing is meant to last. Nothing. So in this transient life, in this human condition, life is a vapor. But it is good, brothers and sisters, to be reminded that those in Christ will outlive it all with imperishable inheritance that cannot be destroyed. Robert Louis Stevenson, you may know him. He, he, he wrote the book Treasure Island. I loved that when I was a kid. But he wrote a poem, When the Stars Are Gone. And he said, The stars shine over the mountains. The stars shine over the sea. The stars look up to the mighty God. The stars look down on me. The stars shall last for a million years, a million years and a day. But God and I will live in love when the stars have all passed away. The stars will perish, but our inheritance will not. It is imperishable. The, it's undefiled, meaning it is unstained or polluted. Everything has been corrupt, corrupted. There is rarely anything now that is kept sacred. From every point of society, sin has infected and defiled it all. When man is involved, it can only be defiled. It's hard to imagine a world that is undefiled by sin, where there's no prisons, there's no jails, there's pure motives and, and no manipulation. Men are honorable and live with nobility. Women are honored and loved. And every child is precious and cherished. No sin at all. I cannot fathom such a place. But when Peter tells us of our inheritance, and he uses this word undefiled, is so that we would understand in comparison to the next world in our inheritance that it will be without spot or blemish or sin. This inheritance is unlike the world we live in. In Revelation chapter 5, John has shown a vision of our future home where no one is worthy to take the scrolls of God's good plan for our inheritance and bring it to completion. And John was upset and he began to weeping because all of humanity in its unworthiness, but then there is one who is found, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who was undefiled and unpolluted and worthy to open the scroll. He has made our inheritance. Lastly, 
this inheritance is unfading. Everything perishes because it's fading. Having turned 41 now, I'm beginning to understand fading. I understand for a decade how so many of you have told me, wait till you turn 40. But it's not just me. It's the whole world. Sin's effect is decaying and fading all of creation. And yet in contrast, and yet in contrast, here is our inheritance that is ours in Christ. And it's unfading. It's not degrading. It's not decaying. It's not affected or stained by, by our sin. Isn't that such good news. Isn't that comforting? But it gets even better because this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Brothers and sisters, what I want you to understand here is the joy of the blessed assurance of our future hope. Your assurance is based upon God's great mercy through Christ's resurrection from the dead. That is living hope. It's not dependent upon you. It's not dependent upon your performance. It's not dependent upon your work or your ability to keep your own self safe. But our hope is only in Christ alone. Our assurance is this future hope is only found in him. So blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because we have an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance that is being kept for us. How does that reorient our attitudes and hearts in this life? How does that redirect your heart and your mind to stop looking at the pedals and how hard it is to get coordinated and to look up? I think deep truths like this do so for us all to look. Psalm 31, 21. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown us his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. Third, we bless the Lord for our salvation. How can we know that in the face of persecution and temptation, we will be preserved and persevere to the end and reach this wonderful inheritance. How do you know that you will, you will make it that far? Well, Peter tells us in verse 5. He says, who, that's meaning you from verse 4. So who is you, who is in Christ, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The God who, according to his great mercy, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope, who is, who is keeping an inheritance uh, for us and ready and waiting for his children, he is also keeping us secure on earth during our exile until salvation is ready to be revealed 
on the last day. No matter how hard things may get, no matter how much pressure comes our way, no matter how marginalized, persecuted, suffering, lost, we can cling to the promise that God will keep us. Verse 5, God will guard us. The God who chose us before the foundation of the world has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He will guard us. Now this all sounds good, but how? How does he do this? Well, we know this from the rest of 1 Peter that his, his followers, they're not exempted from persecution. And we don't believe in the garbage prosperity gospel. That's trash. It's garbage. It's not a gospel. It's an anti gospel. Christians are persecuted. They will suffer agonizing pain, both physical and psychological. We know we live in a fallen world. We see its effects and feel its effects every day. But by God's power, it says we are being guarded by him to endure to the last day, which means God is actively working to preserve and persevere his people so that they will receive their final inheritance and experience the joy of eschatological salvation. Which means in the end, he will preserve us and guard us and keep us for the inheritance we just spoke of. What do we think Romans 8, 34 and so on means? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is seated at the right hand of God, who is indeed is receding, is considered, inter, yeah, interceding for us. So you, you see, he's making the same argument Peter is. Or maybe it's vice versa, but they're making the same argument. The resurrection, y'all. Christ, him, Christ alone. It's him. And he's interceding for us for our endurance, for our perseverance. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Right? I mean, Any of these things? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded sheep to be slaughtered. Meaning that suffering and persecution, it's just kind of our thing as Christians. It's what we endure. It's what we go through. Verse 37, so all these things, are they going to be the thing that destroys us and separates us from God? Verse 37, decisively, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. By his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has loved us, for I am, neither, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else. That's pretty much everything. More than our minds can comprehend, even to the smallest parasite, molecule, virus, disease, anything. Person, presidents, kings, dictators. 
anyone nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ha! Nothing shall separate us. And why? Because he is the guard. He is guarding us. But there is more. Because this text tells us that he is guarding us through faith. We are being guarded through faith for a salvation. So the text does not merely say that believers are protected by God to receive salvation, but rather believers are protected through faith. Obtaining the final inheritance does not bypass us. As we are, as if we are mere uh, automatons who, who are just in this process of what God is doing. We exercise faith as we endure. We exercise the faith that he has given us so that we will continue to endure. Faith here is continually trusting or continuing in faithfulness. Peter did not conceive of faith as a single isolated act, but rather genuine faith is one that proceeds all the way to the day of redemption. The reason why faith is so important is because the greatest threat to our perseverance is unbelief. The greatest threat to our perseverance and our endurance in the faith is our unbelief. So we must continue in the faith, in the truth of God's word, in the things that we have gained this morning. We continue to endure believing in these promises. However, no matter how hard things get, when trials come, when our doubts arise, when we are not left, we are not left to sustain our own faith in our own power. By his power, he guards our faith so that we will not lose our faith. The God who causes you to be born again, who gave you saving faith as a gift, he will also sustain and strengthen that faith. So that whatever you may face until that day when our faith shall become sight. This is why we sing. We love to sing. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. Because it's right here in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you have not caught on, this is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And we don't want to be trapped in how it's been belittled to mere professions with no regeneration or no lasting faith. Because that's not living hope. The perseverance of the saints is the glorious truth of our Father who will guard us and continually strengthen our faith in him that we may endure for a salvation that will be revealed at the last time. Suffering hardship is inevitable in this life. Yet, what is a sure thing is God's mercy to preserve you by faith for a salvation. Psalm 68, 19. Blessed be the Lord, who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. I said in the beginning, what excites the world bores us, and what excites us bores the world. 
the things that we have spoken of this morning, assurance in Christ, the perseverance of the saints, the, the living hope that we have in Him, these, these deep, these, these rich, these glorious truths of, that are all accomplished in the resurrection of Christ, the inheritance that is awaiting that's being kept by the Lord as we endure, and the glorious of salvation through faith that He is guarding for us until it's revealed to end. That's boring to the world. It's boring to the lost. That's boring to the, to the unregenerate and to the, to the unbeliever. The world believes that these things are foolish and boring and stupid and at best they're fairy tales and if that we believe them then, then you shall, shall be made of because you don't believe in science. That's a quote from a funny movie. That you don't believe in, you don't believe in truth. You don't believe in science. You don't believe what man has said. Oh, but to those who are in Christ to those who cling to his word, who hold fast to him and to these promises, brothers and sisters, this excites us. This excites us. This is what gets us going. This is what stirs our affections. This is what gets us going, gets the juices flowing to say, bless the Lord and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because it stirs our affections not to things that are fading, not to things that are perishable and dumb and trinkets and fleeting emotions, but our affections are stored toward the living God, toward Jesus Christ who has been resurrected from the dead. How about you? Are you being stirred? Have you been stirred this morning? Have you been stirred? Has your faith been increased to look at Christ? To behold Him? To delight in Him? To endure through Him? Who is our living hope? Because by His great mercy, He has caused you to be born again, and He is keeping you till the end. So I hope that with Peter and with me, you can exclaim from the depths of your heart, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful. And we truly pray, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have bestowed upon us such an abounding mercy. We thank you that you have caused us to be born again. We are thankful that you have given us a living hope in the resurrection of our Savior from the dead, knowing that in that hope, we too will be raised anew. We're thankful, O oh God, for the inheritance that you have given to us that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, that is being kept for us. What great joy to know that in Christ, those who are in Christ, 
there is an inheritance awaiting us. And Lord, we are truly encouraged and built up this morning by the perseverance of your people. The promise that we will be guarded, that our faith will be guarded until we are ready for the salvation in the last days. We pray, O oh God, that you would help each and every one of us to endure in that faith. And we would hold that shield high and strong together as your church, as your body. We would encourage one another in these things. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.